0: We seem to be all aboard. (laughs) The appearance of Trudy has manifested from the totality. Is this not on? Volume up, please. Okay, is that getting better? Please um, make that gesture again if necessary. Yeah. Soon um, we'll be going back and no more driving the little golf carts and um, (laughs) no more notes. Um, we do really love your notes, and I c- it's late enough in the retreat that it's safe to say this without turning that foyer bulletin board into a fire trap. <laughs> um, here's one. That I save them sometimes from older retreats. We do. Two days ago, I lost my sense of self near the dining room. It was a gift from my parents and other conditions and was very important to me. If found, please speak to one of the managers. No questions asked. Thank you. <laughs> 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 and then this became, so sorry that you lost your sense of self, make plenty of room to mourn and feel the loss, it is impermanence, no thing lasts forever including senses of selves, but now that this one is gone there will be room for a new one to grow, stay open and enjoy the surprise as your new self is birthed, a little heart, this is an other yogi note, like it's a teacherly like one, then A teacher-like yogi wrote back to the person who'd lost their sense of self, this one, very caring. Then someone else wrote, you may be more fortunate than you realize. (laughs) Or another one, I saw a sense of self on the ground near the terrace, but I didn't deserve it, so I just left it on a chair. (laughs) Now, the fact that you guys laugh at this proves that you've been in the retreat a while. <laughs> I have a few more jokes coming, too. Um, so, I, I noticed in some of my meetings today that the, our minds uh, have tended to, you know, project toward the end of the retreat even um, while being here. And it seemed the essence of the questions that about the future are a little bit of what will I take with me from here. Um, what will it be like when I'm out there, not in this lovely bubble again? And for that, I have the answer of the Dalai Lama's um, birthday cartoon. Have you seen that? Where he, the, there are the, there's someone who looks like the Dalai Lama, untying a present and looking inside and saying, Oh, just what I always wanted. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> And you can think of that from the point of view of the desire mind as sort of a mean cartoon. Like, of course, when someone gives us a present, we prefer not to get an empty box. Like, that would be so strange. Mm -hmm. Or, like, um, the ability to not feel deficient or to, you know, not want for anything inwardly. And tomorrow night, Jack will speak about, you know, intention and um, somewhat take care of the many of the questions that may be coming up for you. So to say that this is our last night of noble silence and if there's any way that you'd like to invite yourself to open more deeply and feel in your bones what you really know um, based on this sense of quiet and the structure, please do so. I'd like to speak about equanimity and try to pull together some of the threads from Trudy's talk about holding opposing emotions and ideas in one space. Um, Anicca-anatta-grawappa, I think it was. Um, And Teja's, Teja's clear essence of how we appear as a relative self and sometimes we lose that vastness of interconnection or the unconditioned, take the unconditioned part of ourself for granted and how the two of those are not really opposed, Um, that we can't have the self without the totality or the totality without its expression as who we are. That's kind of equanimity that these um, oppositions and dualities of life seem to reveal each other, like the sound and the space around it. This morning um, happened for, as Jack guided us through the meditation to feel how um, those beautifully soothing sounds come and go, come and go out of something that can't be named or pinpointed. I feel a little bit calmer than I did um, in my first talk. Nonetheless, to try to give a talk is a little bit like having a sitting where I start writing and then suddenly it's like, who changed the channel? <laughs> like. <laughs> so um, bear with me I did get some nice affectionate notes about my previous stream of consciousness talk so thus encouraged I'm going to give another one similar <laughs> 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 one time I was coming towards Spirit Rock during um, one of the trainings that we took to become teachers and I wanted to say the assistant um, teachers have gone to East Bay Meditation Center, other than Don, who's present here, but East Bay Meditation Center tonight has a People of Color Sangha, and it's a beautiful space organized very much along principles of inclusion, and if you live in the Bay Area and haven't visited there, it might be worth your while to um, add it to places where you feel or find a spiritual home, or at least um, something to see or understand, in addition to coming back here But I was driving here for the training over some of those hills that they have in San Francisco where you're doing this and this, and I was talking on the phone at the same time to my friend in Colorado who had just come out of a retreat. And I was very interested in his retreat because he practices this form of intensified retreat called a dark retreat where he's designed this special bag to put over his head. Now, this is something... (laughs) (laughs) if you're really crazy for enlightenment, you can do this too. No, it's better if you have actual instructions about how to do it. But the sensory deprivation and lack of reference points allows an access not only to not self, but also to a sense of terror and (laughs) bewilderment. So (laughs) he has a room that he's set up that has all like stuff over the windows. I really think don't try this (laughs) out. And then he has this bag that he puts over his head when he needs to either cook or go to the bathroom, which is down the hall. So he puts this burlap thing over his head and anyway, but he said he sat down and within an hour he was paralyzed by the thought of what if my girlfriend dies? Um, How will I be able to cope? And now Mona is, you know, healthy, extremely healthy, like she does something like three hours of yoga every day and she uh, looks beautiful. Nonetheless, of course she could die And um, he just found one of those things happening to him where um, he just felt very disturbed. And four days later, as he was telling me, he sort of fast-forwarded through it, he said um, he had this insight that the feeling of everything being so beautiful in the way that it is that no snowflake falls out of place. So he went from one to the other Um, feeling and no snowflake out of place like that implies for me like when I come home to Boston and they say there'll be a lot of snow this winter what if it's like two years ago and the snowflakes are landing and nine feet deep in my driveway you know is that out of place it feels so (laughs) sometimes and then Joe said do you think that um, all the masters of the past and the great enlightened ones went into their cave and pow it was just like that or could it have been more like what we experience, what we actually experience, this kind of experience in retreat where there are times of great clarity and times when it's not so easy and we somehow unify it all within the practice and within the heart. As Spring said, everything is, can be seen as for our learning, for our benefit in some way. Um, Michelangelo the painter was accused of having made a pact with the devil to create things of such beauty, and his response was, if anyone knew how much work it was, they'd stop saying that. (laughs) (laughs) So I think you know that. Um, I think you know that about this time here, that it's both a tremendous amount of work and it has ups and downs. Um, And over time, as we practice through these ups and downs, there's some kind of knowledge or understanding that arises. And I've heard it in some of the meetings with you, um, today, sort of the, there's sort of the only love group, the meta is where I will abide, and then there's the I am all of it group of people, you know, sort of you might call, at least temporarily, those who access through love or those who access through a type of wisdom, and there are the ones who say, well, now I kind of know how to do it, I know how to disentangle my heart, Or I know that I can let my thoughts run and Mm. I don't have to be completely caught up in them. Things like this. Like this is what emerges from watching these ups and downs over a period of time. The mind begins to have an understanding that it wouldn't have had. It it could sort of have it intellectually, but it can't um, be from your bones kind of unless you've been connecting. And... The structure here sort of a little bit forces us to connect inwardly, but there's the kind of understanding that emerges that you can't buy and you can't get from a book. It's been known for many centuries in the human world. Like I was looking at um, Mencius, I guess, I'm afraid to try to pronounce his name in Chinese, at fourth century BC, talking about how we mold our character at the, maintaining our innate goodness Uh, amidst the decrees of fate or the heavens, you know, heaven's decrees land on our heart and we mold our character according to this interaction, trying to stay with our real nature of um, profound internal goodness and to know that more and more deeply as we face the decrees of heaven. And Mencius goes on to say that there's such a thing as the unmoving mind, which is a kind of intuition that you also can't get from thinking about it. You can only get it from facing the circumstances with this goodness of heart. Or with the technique that we use here, just this simple moment-to-moment connecting and coming back. So being able to know that these feelings and thoughts of boredom or dislike or even violence or terrible grief as they're held in our heart space, as we call it, this loving awareness, this present attention. And sometimes with teachers, I know um, Jack likes to invite people to bring those um, scary experiences to the present and let them get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and fill the whole universe or go through universes and universes of despair until there's maybe one little blade of grass on a far distant planet that's coming back to life, where you see that um, our violence inside, we can always have more space than whatever is conditioned, like whatever the experience is, that the awareness, because the awareness doesn't have a dimension, consciousness is a non-material state, this is kind of for the Buddhist geeks out there, Um, Because it doesn't have a dimension, it can adapt to anything. You can say that it's always larger, but it can also be infinitely small. It just doesn't have a size. And by not having a size, this consciousness can be everywhere and can be with everything. And in fact, it arises with and in and as um, everything that we experience. But we so often get lost in what's out there. But when we start to see that we're not fully held or defined by the momentary experience or when we start to see it dissolving or when that clutch lets us go and we find that we can connect with someone beyond the label that we thought we had for them or connect with ourself beyond the self that we thought, whom we thought we were confined with. That's what's called by the nature of emptiness or liberation or freedom and so many of us have felt it here and now in this retreat, in our experience. That's it. There's no other um, profound knowledge than this skill of uh, release. And it's sort of a probabilistic enterprise, you know, like mindfulness. You think you're going to pay attention and then suddenly you're swept away and then sometimes you come back and you just feel so right in the moment. And we keep trying and applying and then at some point we think we've got it down and then suddenly there's a big change and you need a new skill you need more softness or you need something else and it is really like that it's as if we're being asked to play this instrument that keeps changing the number of strings who was it that said how what music can we make with one fewer string well sometimes all of a sudden we have seven instead of four you know something like that But as we open to our deepest nature of mind and heart and start to trust the goodness uh, that's there and feel the goodness that's in us and the goodness of life, even as we know, um, you know, what's often been called like evil or separation. Like Dr. King said, um, I know the good things of life, but the evil I do. (laughs) You know, (laughs) yet he was what we might call a saint, you know. Someone who had a real vision and gave his vision to the world, but he knew also within himself, not perfect. That's equanimity, too, in a way, of the sort that Trudy was talking about yesterday, that we can sometimes know that there's parts of ourselves that are really not finished. We were listening um, yesterday to Aung Zha, who was, is a journalist from Burma, who's really kept a voice of truth and precision and clarity through so much of what that country has undergone and while he says maybe it's likely that or possible that in 50 years there will be peace right now there's sort of these skirmishes and the it may be that the army is keeping certain conflicts alive or allowing certain bombs to go off so that the army can justify its own existence so at some point they might be able to take over again and trying to keep it all sort of in in clear perspective that There really is a possibility now. There really is room for hope in a very mixed landscape. As he was speaking, I was just reminded of my life or my mind or so much that goes on that is qualified, both good and bad and skirmishing in this area, but lots of peace over here, and maybe mindfulness is a good leader. And then for a good leader to exist, there need to be a lot of other elements in place, like... Those who are ready to hear the teaching, like the part in myself that uh, needs to listen, or the parts that don't listen, and what happens with that. It's always kind of a very um, complex picture. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then our mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful... Rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see strange and wonderful things come and go, and you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha." Such a beloved quote, and so beautiful and so true. So this still forest pool, really our awareness... And the strange and wonderful things that come and go are maybe having to push the lawnmower or read the newspaper in the coffee shop or do your tax return or tend to your kids after you lose your job and reassure them that everything's okay and have it not be a lie, kind of, because I think people have truth detectors. So this is kind of what um we'd like to make space to remember it's that opening to all things in our experience is what gives access to that which is not touched by the experience and it seems that that's the only that's the main gate that we can go through is to really be with it we don't always be with it so easily all by ourselves like there's a joke of like, it takes seven attendants to have Thich Nhat Hanh walk so slowly, <laughs> kind of, when, when he was walking, I'm sorry to say that, but, um, and how much support does it take for this one retreat, like the staff who are um, present and very welcome, the cooks who work very hard, all of our efforts to do the jobs here, um, all of the people at home that are allowing you to be here, or someone watering your plants, maybe, or whatever that might be, or all the time of work that you put in to be able to afford the fee. Like, all of this goes into being able to create this time where we can touch something and learn a skill that's um, quite delicate and not easy. Ran Ortner, the painter, said, There are moments in painting when you're somehow processing more information than your actual mind is capable of holding. As a painting gets complex, it gains the same quietness I've found in racing motorcycles and surfing, where the demand for deep internal internal calm is big. A person is most powerful when they're in a state of inner peace, and art brings magic back from that mysterious place. So no self, you might say, is what sees all things and yet itself can't be grasped or brought forward. That's present without sort of manifesting, let's say. The wanderer, Gota approached the Buddha and said to him, how is it now, Master Gotama?" which is sort of like saying Mr. Nisker or something like that. He just used his family name. In other words, I think he sounds like a little bit of a hard ass already, kind of. <laughs> like. So how is it now? Is there a self? And the Blessed One was silent. Then Master Gotama, are you saying there's no self? A second time, the Buddha didn't say anything. Then the Wanderer Vajra got up and left. And I think he was like, forget it. Like, the guy's not talking, this doesn't work for me, (laughs) There's no answering doesn't work. Um, Maybe he didn't listen to the silence carefully enough. So then afterwards, um, the Buddha's friend Ananda says, "Um, how come you didn't say anything to that guy? You know, like, basically, (laughs) like, what were you up to? And the Buddha said, well, you know, first if I'd said there was a self, I would have sided with those who say that, the eternalists. And if I'd said no, I would have sided with the people who say there's, you know, the, the nihilists. And would it have been consistent with the actual realization that all phenomena are no self, are not self? We'll express this very clearly the other night. And Ananda goes sort of, no, you know, kind of, I think, like, no. Um, and then the Buddha goes on, he's still talking. He says, if I'd said there was no self, the wonder of who's already confused, would have gotten even more confused by saying, it seems the self I had formerly doesn't really exist right now. So what does that mean, the silence that holds the self I had formerly? Right? Sometimes I think the Buddha was probably resting in a state that you could maybe observe closely when he wasn't speaking, but that um, it's kind of time to listen to silence or something like that. It also seems that the Buddha doesn't want us to seek an answer, but to question uh, our assumptions about who we are, like that. My monk friend in Sikkim just came back. One of his jobs as a monk is to go to the public hospital and help people die, kind of. He provides, he does a ceremony with a bell and some prayers and stuff. And people who are from that culture understand that this is to help them through the process of dying and find a sense of peace and tranquility through entering the heart of Amitabha Buddha, the one like this big red sunset-colored, warm, enveloping, loving space. And all you have to do is touch Amitabha's like toenail and you go right to this space of openness through the process. But he said while he was doing his drum and bell that he started crying because the person that was dying was someone who had ruined his liver and kidneys with alcohol. And not only was it so painful to imagine that person's state of mind, especially painful was that he had lost touch with who he really was. As you can see, like, he actually basically killed himself through forgetting um, this, what's, you know, you could call it the true self. The true self that's not, it's deeper than the ordinary self that holds it like the silence holds the bell. So, before you think of who you are, that true self is already there, it's already here. Beyond any word, like we've learned really to turn our mind into our experience. And if someone says, like, don't think about it, that sounds too coarse. It's like, really to be with and to enter in and to live in real time, like live the experience. It's. You know, it's a very subtle art that we've learned here. So even when you feel there's a kind of lack of control over what's going on in your sitting, like you have an intention and then suddenly something else happens or you have a wish and you get something different, you know, when we're in the river of experience, it matters so much less what we're getting because you're, in it. And when you're fully in it, there's that resonance of not necessarily needing it to change and become something else or become something or change for my whims. Someone in the meetings today, um, I should have asked you to sign waivers for, to be quoted in the talk, but <laughs> I kind of paraphrase them enough that I hope people don't feel too zeroed in on. But someone saying, you know, that we're all of it. We're just all of it, you know, starting off and feeling like it was all the itchy and all the restless and all of that, and then slowly coming to realize that who we are is all of it. And by being all of it, we're not one thing. We're not um, so centralized. So, among your body and your emotions and your thoughts and your memories and your futures, who are we? And yet, we are those things too it's both and neither, kind of. Well, the Buddha went on and said, don't say it's both and neither, you can't. Just go to the experience. In fact, that, that could be his central teaching, not about what's out there, or not about like the nature of reality, it's to come to the experience and live in that, live in this. My husband did a show on all the vintage movie theaters that are in our town, Somerville, there used to be 14, and Some of them are bowling alleys and one of them is a Yamaha motorcycle dealership and one is a climbing gym and stuff. And so he did a historical thing of showing the old theaters and all the dish giveaways that they used to have, you know, and um, giving away a pig in one of them. In the 1930s, one of the door prizes was a a baby pig. (laughs) Um, And one of the wives of a theater owner or member of the couple that owned the theater wrote her biography, uh, her autobiography, and it was called I Laughed, I Cried. (laughs) It's kind of, isn't that all of our biography? (laughs) (laughs) So sweet. So, how could I want to be different? How could I want to be different? You know, and what matters to us? Also, knowing at the same time, there may be a long process before we unlearn some of the crapware that came installed with this being, you know, some of the stuff that the person who lost their self said um, from culture, from family, <laughs> from experiences. The way that our naive and innocent mind just wraps a sense of self around certain experiences, wraps it so tightly, like, I have a morning glory that grows in my garden. Um, Every year, like it's, it's a pretty abundant vine and all the seeds fall into the dirt. And so in the spring, it's great. It's all these little tiny plants and then it grows up around the thing that holds up the clothesline and it sort of bursts into all these flowers, but it's also going around and it gets the sunflower and it kind of like weighs down the sunflower and kills that one unless you cut it, you know, and it just chokes so much stuff by wrapping itself around these living things, so you have to go out and kind of control the morning glory. Every morning also it puts out these new fresh flowers that every afternoon kind of die, so it's sort of like this relative sense of self that seems to get so tight around our awareness that you can't even see the awareness anymore, and also produces its own very fabulous flowers, you know, interesting flowers, right? But from the relative sense of self, it seems that we have this tremendous motivation to not suffer anymore, you know, that um, one of our teachers or friends here, uh, Da Tintin, says, if I didn't have a relative sense of self or a sense of others, then she's saying she would never teach. She said, I just stay home and play on Facebook. I wouldn't come and teach you guys. <laughs> she was saying this in a class that I was taking with her, that we actually, our heart or our self knows when we're suffering. We know it very deeply, actually, many of us Um, And we don't want to suffer. Like, that's actually part of our goodness. We would really like to resolve it. Mostly we try to resolve it by changing the outer conditions, and that's really part of it. It's um, praise Allah, but tie your camel, you know? Only it's tie your camel, but also praise Allah in this iteration, like to remember that. Or the serenity prayer that I quoted the first time, like, you know, to change what we can, but then also to change internally we have some kind of option or skill-set to not suffer. Um, and each of us has learned it in a different way, to a different extent. Um, so, to practice that, if you actually know the kind of internal moves that are sometimes available, not always, we probably have to use a few different moves. You know, sometimes abiding in the anger, sometimes stepping aside from something, sometimes just remembering, or sometimes it just seems to dissolve on its own. like. I always used to think of mindfulness as this slot machine, you know, you put in a lot of quarters and eventually they all line up, ching, you're like, yeah, this is good, you know, and then all a sudden back to chaos, you know. Um, You spend the whole payoff on your next set of, you know, (laughs) attempts. (laughs) So about leaving here, you know, like we're gonna be embedded with jobs and people and traffic and chaos and don't forget the election, uh, don't you think part of enlightenment has been to just avoid a whole lot of that? <laughs> um, who was it, Trudy? Were you the one saying that the Onion said that they've decided to prolong the campaign until December in case we needed to get the out oh, till next June because we don't know the candidates well enough? Eight more debates, three more town halls. Eight more debates and three more town hall meetings. <laughs> right. Well, it's our—it's really our practice, and I think the idea of making this big transition into embeddedness or more impingement um, can create a lot of bubbles of strategizing and planning. And um, I've found my spiritual home. How am I going to continue on and become, you know, fully enlightened? And sometimes it might just be to let go of your strategy about becoming enlightened. <laughs> and you're more enlightened in this moment, or to see that even bubbles that apparently have—it's almost like they've put a root outside into what you call like real life, which is actually not real life, right? It's the diluted life, but where some part of our mind is saying, well, this is just like this craziness that I did. And when I get back, it's gonna be actual combat, maybe. Like here we are in the training camp. So I have a, um, I have a late night TV story, now that you were slowly coming out of retreat. Um, my husband and I often stay up really late, which becomes a problem when you come to retreats and you have to get up really early. Yes. Night owls. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and he's writing a biography about a World War II person that's interesting. So we, I like World War II things too. So we were watching a season of a Netflix about the first commando units that were trained in World War II to go fight behind enemy lines. And it was kind of one of those documentaries which had reenactments and stuff. And what the sweet thing that they did was they actually found some of the survivors of the original units who were now in their late 80s. And they got them all. And they, some of them, they took them back to scenes of battles or operations that they'd done. Or they talked to them about their training. And they put on their old berets and their hats and stuff. And they're like in their little British gardens and demonstrating the moves on each other. They say, like, now you come up behind him and you take his helmet and you go, you know, and <laughs> you break his neck and stuff. And some of them, like, reminiscing about how they'd married young women who were in the houses where they were billeted. And it seemed that one... Um, a pair of them had become a couple, because when they were telling their stories, they were sitting on the couch holding hands, so it appeared that they had fallen in love and been in love ever since that time, but nonetheless, they were demonstrating the death moves on each other and laughing, you know, like, ha-ha, mm-hmm. not with a knife, you know, and they would say, like, I still can kill you with one move, you know, like that, you know, <laughs> so remember, I'm going to talk more about killing you with one move, but they went into the Norwegian fish oil plant that this fish oil was being used for bombs And so they went behind the lines and they expected to encounter nothing but like flabby resistance but instead they found a bunch of uh, Hardened soldiers who were back from the Russian front. So it was a much worse battle than they anticipated and one of the young men It was his first battle said they were all hiding in people's houses because they were fighting through the town to try to get back to their boat So they're hiding under this table in the kitchen, which is maybe like the roof of this, <laughs> you know, there, and the bullets are going over their heads, and it's Christmas, they haven't eaten anything in a while, so they're reaching over the table and getting the Christmas dinner and eating it and listening to the babies crying in the basement and stuff, and then they're thinking, like, we're going to have to get out from under this table and get to our boat, otherwise, eventually, we'll just be killed in this shelter, <laughs> you know, we can't um, stay here but they couldn't get out either because they felt so sheltered in the moment by the table and by the homely environment and the stuff and the decoration. So one of them said he saw this little silver thing on the mantelpiece, which was a little box with a uh, Christian cross symbol on it. And he thought, being a Christian, he said, I thought I needed God with me and that that was for me or I really needed it. So he grabs this, he steals this small token and that is what gives him the courage to leave to get out from under the table. Like he just had something that he could hold, which I think that's what our minds actually want. That's what some of the questions are about. What will it be like when I leave? Um, What can I hold? And for this man, it was an external talisman that gave him an internal mind state. You see, it wasn't really the thing. It was the ability to find something in himself that would allow him to go through all the noise and the possibility of death to get out. So in this episode, they bring him back to the same house 50 years later and the same family, like the baby who was crying in the basement is now the lady living in the house. And she has this very interesting purple curtains and really bright purple, amazing curtains and the same table that they were hiding under. Then they have a conversation sitting at the table and he starts crying and says he's so sorry he stole this from her house because, you know, isn't a kind of person that usually takes other people's things and she said um it was for you and she sort of he pushes it across the table to her and she says this was my grandmother's thing and I will give it to you now and I forgive you completely but then he opened up she opens up the inside and it had all these bible verses in it which surely by then the man had read and the verse that she that was on the top was um be not afraid for I am with you you know, and it's something like that of to be with ourself or to be with our true self or that spirit of of knowing how we can do it to um, get out from under the table, any table, like not just this one, the table of a certain conversation that you don't want to have or um, maybe even getting out of bed on certain days. So this talisman had carried him through uh, many campaigns of the war all the way to D-Day. And in he not only needed that external talisman, but he also, in a certain sense, needed her forgiveness to be able to go through the the full experience and come back to a real sense of internal balance for himself. And you just could see, like, the serenity come back to that man, you know. So, we do really need each other sometimes. We know that we're going to be, you know, get lost and... We know that we need, like, the memory in a way of these teachings, of the lineage, of the refuges that we've taken, and of our own uh, combat moves that we take, that we've learned here. So, like, one of our teachers, Tulku Urgin, said, like, the ma- the main move is just to turn the mind like this. Like he said, it's just like your hand, like the hand is going out and looking for things like this, you know. And when we need to, we remember this to turn back and look inward, to look at, or let's say look at, let's say no, let's say be with, let's say what is that? It's a, kind of like a whole body understanding of how do we find access to our full experience here and now, coming back to being the one on the chair, or the one who's angry, um, with a kind of tolerance for the experience of life. Dr. Jeroen Swart wrote in the New York Times in 2010, Some people think elite athletes have an easy time of it. It just doesn't get any easier. You hurt just as much. But knowing how to accept it is what allows people to improve their performance. So wishing for bliss or wishing for an end to this or some you know, pleasant experience isn't the only way. Like, Stop planning to be a Buddha and just be. Um, not needing to be different, there you are already as a Buddha, now, here. Who are we really? What are we really? And if each of us had no name, then who would we be then? So it's important to be able to just hold this When you take away the things that you know, that we feel that you know, and what's there instead, like sometimes it's just a kind of plainly openness, like to look at your experience and say, you know, who is knowing this? Who is seeing through these eyes? Who or what is seeing through my seeing? So much we'd like to freeze our internal life into something that we feel like we can hold onto. But if we come up close to it, we see that things just don't hold that way. They do for a while. And there's a need to push the lawnmower in that. But it's also important to be able to relax into just this sea of existence, this letting go. I'm going to read a couple of poems. W.S. Smerwin just wrote a new book of poems at, in a, at a great age while he was losing his eyesight. Um, it's called uh, Garden Time. Is it I that have come to this age, or is it the age that has come to me? Which one has brought along all these silent images on their shadowy river? And then he addresses the day itself in a different poem, but Would I love it this way if I were somewhere else? Or if I were younger for the first time? Or if these very birds were not singing? Red torment of body or gray void of grief? Would I love it this way? If I knew that I would remember anything that's here now? Anything? Anything? So we will remember um some things. We will remember more like carrying in our bones the the knowing of this. But it also, as a relative world, needs some tending and attention uh, when we leave, as it's needed tending and attention here. I just made a small insight that often my getting from one end of my ordinary day to another feels like I'm kind of going through a jungle, like it's dramatic sometimes. But that's what we validate in the retreat, right? That's what it's like. It's, you know, this being human. The word humankind, like kindness, comes from kind, like we're all the same. You know, we're this is this kind of being that we are. This kindness knows um, that this is what it is to be human, to be kind of a vulnerable, fragile thing going 67,000 miles an hour around the sun or Wes knows those kinds of statistics, and wishing that we could just hold on to something and not being able to, and learning that there's often that gesture of letting go that provides like the happiness we're looking for. I said it in the other talk, like to hold it here and not like this. So there was a um, tricycle story about a Catholic priest who was dying, and This was written from the point of view of one of their hospice attendants and that the wife really um, didn't want to let him go and was always strategizing about another treatment and stuff where the priest was really getting ready. And finally, um, he found a way to tell her that he wanted to walk in the garden. And without having to say it, because of their close connection she understood that for him it was the garden of the Lord, like his father's garden, that he was ready to go home to peace, or that he was in peace and just uh, ready to let go. And she allowed the peace that was in him to become a peace that she could feel. And she, with her being able to let go of him, then he was able to let go in, um, in his process. So for that, I really thank us all for... Being here and doing this important work together, this thing that will could seem like a really inscrutable joke to a lot of people, like um, we will remind you to limit some of your descriptions of your experiences <laughs> when you get home <laughs> later. <laughs> but as our last night of silences, we 'll have another sitting to I just invite us in these moments when we 'll sit together as we usually do. Um, the venerable Dihani Wahu, who's both a Cherokee elder and holder of a Buddhist lineage as an incarnation, or recognized to be the incarnation of a uh, wise woman um, from some previous generation in Tibet. She spoke about the medicine of appreciation, how um, healing it is to appreciate. So for all that we've learned here, for all that we've Given and been given while we're here, this autumn time of harvest, this kind of autumn time of our retreat. Like, it's fine to reflect a little in order to harvest that. Like, what does it mean? Um, Less the fear of like what's going to happen when I'm assaulted and I, you know, when I leave here and I have to go, you know, through a red light or something or stop at one. Remember that that red color ahead of you means you should stop your car rather than just red, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That this body and mind is the heart of wisdom. That our heart is the wisdom heart. And that all the information flow, that the tiny particles of life that go in us and out of us and through us and around us, that this conversation between the inside and the outside, it's waiting for each of us to participate and to be of help and to radiate the understanding that we are where we need to be if we just were to know it. So like this is heaven, like there's not another one. It's here. And we each know that in our own um, way. So we'll be quiet now together. Wes, did you read the It All Comes Down to this poem? Yep. I have to paraphrase. Sometimes when I'm washing the dog or sitting on the toilet or washing the dishes, I say to myself, it all comes down to this. (laughs) Thank you.